Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Andy Slavitt, recent senior advisor to President Biden's White House COVID response team, former acting administrator for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the guy credited with saving the Affordable Care Act's signature effort, the launch of the insurance exchange portal, healthcare.gov. He's author of Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Factcheck.org's Lori Robertson checks in, the managing editor, looking at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Andy Slavitt here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Andy Slavitt, recent White House senior advisor for President Biden's COVID response team. He previously oversaw the deployment of healthcare.gov under the Affordable Care Act and was acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under President Obama. Mr. Slavitt is host of the podcast In the Bubble, and he's the author of a new book, Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Andy, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. It's great to be back. You know, uh, Andy, before we get to your book, I want to hear your thoughts about the Supreme Court's most recent ruling, which upheld uh, the ACA for the third time. And obviously, it had gone the other way. It would have jeopardized health coverage for millions of Americans. And I wonder if you could talk about the significance of the Supreme Court decision on the law uh, that you've been so intimately connected with. And what what does the the latest development uh, pave the way for in terms of health policy? Well, the ACA has become kind of integral to life for many Americans and many American families, not just the 30 billion people that get insurance through the ACA, but the the now uh, many, many protections that that most all of us in the U.S. take for granted, uh, protecting us against pre-existing addition discrimination, et cetera. And for a lot of people, you know, it's sort of been this sword hanging over their head that someday, you know, even though they've got a chronically ill child, that someday someone may be able to take away their insurance. And so the most important thing is that I think that sword is gone. Um, I think the the lengthy threats around from, from the executive branch, from Donald Trump, the the House and the Senate trying to repeal the bill, court cases, you know, we should now move on and be able to talk about how to give Americans more security and have a more affordable and better operating healthcare system. You know, it, it's worth pondering um, you know, the court basically said by seven to two that that the that the plaintiffs didn't even have standing, which means that they weren't being harmed by the law. Right. It's worth pondering why people would sue to take away other people's health care and rights when they themselves were not even being harmed. So I think it's, it's a, maybe another story, but it's something that it'd be really good for us as a country to come to grips with. Well, I, for one, am very glad to have this third one behind us. Certainly remember yeah. the first two. So this is a, a good day uh, in healthcare. care. Uh, but you certainly have uh, racked up quite a bit of experience stepping in to help in times of crisis. You helped rescue the online insurance portal back in the early days. The ACA was so su- successful. I think we remember the website kind of crashing and burning as people tried to get on and, and uh, take advantage of trying to get health care. 
But in your in your book, you talk about your reluctance, perhaps, to step into the fray once again uh, to do it. Maybe uh, share with us a little bit about that decision to go back in, how you pulled a team together to confront the crisis. I think there's a lot to be learned from how that happens in a moment of crisis, the, the war room conversations, if you will, uh, that helped ultimately shift the pandemic strategy in this country to a much better place. Well, for me, it started even earlier. It sort of started when the, when the pandemic began and, and the book, Preventable, really outlines uh, what happened. And I, from my beginnings of my conversations with Jared Kushner, who I spent the better part of the year talking to, um, and Deborah Burks and Tony Fauci, um, as well as people from all across the country that were impacted, doctors, nurses. Um, so this really lays out kind of in a narrative form what I saw and how that all worked. And it culminated, um, didn't know that when I was writing the book, but at the end of this, it culminated in the election of Joe Biden and a real commitment on his part to really taking accountability for this crisis and, and ending it once and for all. So he was, um, you know, in doing that, it is sort of hard to resist the call, no matter what you're doing in your life, when so much is at stake. When you think back to that time, it wasn't that long ago, thousands of people a day were dying. We had really no inventory of vaccines, not enough vaccinators, not, not enough places for people to get vaccinated. Only 40% of people said they even wanted to get vaccinated. But so much at stake, new variants coming in. And so for me and for all of us who had the privilege of being working on this out of the White House, um, it was an incredibly critical mission. I worked with, with great people um, to, to do it and get it done and to try to demonstrate to this country that when we, on our best days, uh, we can accomplish anything we want to. You know, Andy, in war and, and in the pandemic, leadership matters. And I think we have a tale of two responses. And we watched in 2020 uh, the country go from this runaway pandemic, killing thousands of Americans per day, uh, as of the other day, 600,000. But 2021, uh, we saw an enormous shift in terms of the reduction in the deaths. Obviously, the president uh, announced today uh, 300 million vaccines delivered. Uh, and you say the previous administration committed several deadly sins. Tell us what they were and describe how the Biden strategy has uh, altered that and changed trajectory. So first of all, managing a pandemic is hard. You know, uh, uh, sadly, you're gonna lose people. And um, I think we should be careful about being too critical about people for making well-meaning mistakes in the fog of war. Those are, those are not the kinds of things that that I think um, I found fault with and we find fault with in, in, in the book. But there were th three what I call deadly sins that, that come out of this book that I think you can see up close. One is um, beginning with the president's willingness to deny the pandemic um, for too long. Um, we, we, we now know that he knew in January that people were going to be dying in large numbers. And he went to bed every night, presumably soundly, um, and it wasn't until the NBA called its season off in March, then the stock market went down, that, it, that forced him to even publicly acknowledge the pandemic. If he would have simply said, hey, we have a problem, and we're going to have to get through this together, would have saved so many lives if he would have done that in January. The fact that he didn't and then continued to downplay the virus is, I think, a very deadly sin. Um, second is the quashing of dissent. There's a scene in the book where Alex Azar is about to go on Fox and Friends, and his script says that things are going well, 
um, but could change rapidly. First of all, things were not going well, but it was that phrase, but could change rapidly. The White House saw that script, pulled him from Fox and Friends, and then forbade him from talking to the media for 45 days. So imagine this, here we are in a global pandemic and our own Department of Health and Human Services isn't allowed to talk to the press or the public. And that became a pattern throughout the administration that whole year, where anytime somebody spoke up against a narrative that Trump wanted, which was basically that this whole thing is just overblown, um, whether it was Deborah Burks or Tony Fauci or Nancy Messonnier, he would silence them and ostracize them. So because it's a novel coronavirus and no one has a monopoly on the answer, you need dissenting voices, you need experts, you need scientists, you need people to say what they think. Uh, but he viewed that as a reflection on him and his reelection, and so that was a, the problem. And and the, the third deadly sin, which is almost for extra credit, was, you know, the pandemic is hard enough, but he saw in it an opportunity to take advantage of the divisions in our country and turn the pandemic into something political. You know, I talked to world leaders who said, you know, no one, not everyone loves masks. You know, we have plenty of debate about whether to wear them. We've got plenty of debate about social distancing and lockdowns, et cetera. Those are all very legitimate conversations. But what the president did is he took it a step further and said, basically, this is in a matter of identity. And once he saw that his supporters were on one side of this, he, as a populist, he played into that. And so he basically undermined the ability of the, of the country to respond. And it seems like that's stuck, right? I mean, that's still with us today. That third sin is- We're living with the is, legacy. We're gonna live with that legacy for a long time. The other ones, you know, administrations are always silent. Because if you could people. deal with this on its merits, you could have real conversations with people about masks, yes or no, you know, the, the trade-offs between economic and health issues, all of which are very legitimate conversations to have. Mm-hmm. But he took this out of the realm of legitimate conversation and into the realm of something quite different. Well, I think, Andy, one of those that we look back on was the issue of should it have been a state-by-state response or a national response? And and what we seemed to see was a lot of competition and really almost competition being promoted between the states, competing for PPE, uh, competing for the vaccines, competing for the supplies to go with the vaccines. You warned against a state-based approach, especially in a pandemic. And on the theory that we're always going to have national challenges that come at us, I hope the next pandemic is, I'll save it for the next lifetime maybe, but we know that these things will happen again. What should have happened and how, you know, what flaws did it reveal in our system that maybe we can do better the next time on? Look, it's a big country and there's no question that we need to allow people who are regional and local leaders to be very involved. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here, and and I had this very conversation with Jared Kushner, which I lay out in the book, is that um, they made a very deliberate specific decision that their strategy, their political strategy, not their pandemic strategy, but their political strategy was to allow Trump to get credit for opening the country and then shift responsibility to the states uh, and what they call the state responsibility handoff. That was literally the name of it. And when things went wrong, as they inevitably would, he could blame the governors and blame the states. And for any bad news, if they had to shut things down again, he wouldn't have to be the one to do it. And that, um, you know, I talked about in the book, there's this expression that Barack Obama used to use, which is something to the, to the effect of, it was a basketball expression. It was, some people like to have the ball in their hands in the fourth quarter. And Donald Trump wanted no part of the ball. Donald Trump wanted the ball as far away from him as possible. 
And there's really no way to manage yourself and your country through a pandemic without taking responsibility. And the interesting thing is my political calculation is that he would have been politically rewarded if he would have said, you know, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I'm working on this. I'm trying to protect every life, exercise a degree of empathy um, at our loss, which he never did for, for the people we were losing. And he went the other direction and I don't think it worked out. We're speaking today with Andy Slavitt, recent senior advisor for the White House COVID response team. He's author of a new book, Preventable, the inside story on how leadership failures, politics and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Congratulations. It's already a bestseller. And, uh, you know, just uh, diving into the to the book, you outlined some of the heroes and you you talked about how some people were muzzled in the administration. And, you know, we certainly have had both uh, Dr. Fauci and uh Rick Bright on the show, uh, who both uh, were clarion voices during the pandemic. Rick uh, certainly paid for it with his dismissal for publicly speaking the truth. And I'm wondering if you could just uh, tell us some of the other outstanding heroes. Uh, there were millions on the front line doing it, but uh, inside the bubble, people who were, right. were standing tall. Well, look, you, you got it exactly right. I mean, two decades ago, Tony Fauci and his team and the people at BARDA, which, which Rick Bright ended up uh, overseeing, created this platform, uh, this mRNA platform, over the last two decades. And many, many people were involved in it, people from the private sector, people from the public sector, people in Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. It's truly an American success story that, that many people should be proud of and take credit for. You know, as it, when it came to early January, uh, a few people sprung into action. One was, one was Fauci and, and Barney Graham, who worked on his team, getting the sequence over to Moderna and on January 13th, Moderna started working on a vaccine. The other person who is a complete unsung hero is a career civil servant named uh, Peter Marks. So Peter is in in the FDA. Peter came up with this idea that he called uh, Operation Warp Speed. Now this was an earlier inclination of Operation Warp Speed and it was a very interesting idea. Now he's a Star Wars fan. So that's where he gets Operation Warp Speed from. And he says in this idea, Rather than waiting for, we know who all these vaccine uh, companies are, rather than having them all do a bunch of work and submit it to the FDA and having us evaluate it, why don't we send people from the FDA and BARDA and NIH out to do the work with the companies so that we can make the observations as they're making them and we don't have to do this back and forth. And that cut down tremendously on the amount of time that it was going to take. What makes him an even greater hero is they then went to the Trump administration, to Alex Azar, and said, this is our idea, what do you think? And Azar liked it, and ultimately Congress funded it. But then uh, what happened is that um, the White House saw this as a political opportunity. And so they invited Peter Marks into the White House and said, we're going to run Operation Warp Speed out of the White House. And then it became something very, very different. And it became the president's way of demonstrating that he had this virus beat. And so he used that to then say, we are going to get a vaccine uh, even necessarily before it was ready. And so what Peter Marks did was he did something that was almost never done in the history of politics is he said, I'm leaving the White House and I'm going back to the FDA because we need people with sound judgment to evaluate when these vaccines are ready. And then when President Trump said later that he was going to force these drugs to be approved, He had a meeting the next day with a bunch of people that he knew would would get out. And he said, if these drugs are approved and they're not safe and effective, I'm going to publicly resign. 
So he was not only the creator of this approach, but then when the approach started to get abused, he went to navigate it. And it's really a terrific story. That's great. Well, that is a name yeah. we want to remember and, and, and a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing it. You know, uh, we seem to be well past the days when we were seeing thousands of cars roll through our uh, mass vaccination sites. Vaccines have fallen off precipitously, but we still have uh, populations, significant numbers of people um, outside the mainstream, maybe underserved, hard to reach, vaccine hesitant, however you want to think of it. The Biden uh, team's got the community core uh, formed to address the needs of vulnerable populations. Our health departments are working with people uh, to get help out there. But there's a real urgency uh, with this variant uh, in our probably not distant future, and it's spreading rapidly. What do you think about the next phase of vaccinations? How, how are we going to get back to that sense of urgency to get that, that last large group of people vaccinated? And why are those people so vital to stopping this pandemic? Well, so I think we have some people, and I would put myself in this category, to whom a vaccine was not a very difficult decision. Mm -hmm. I knew right away that was something I would do, and I wanted to do it as quickly as possible. And th that describes a lot of people in this country. There's another set of people, there's a, probably another couple categories of people, to be fair, one of whom says, you know what, I need to think about it more. I need more data. It's a more considered decision. It's something I'm putting in my body, and I want to make sure it's safe, and what do I know about it? And I think we need to take a step back and really respect that process, respect the fact that for some people, this is the decision they want more information about. Now, the best thing we can do for those people is get them that information in a trustworthy, reliable way. Fortunately, the vaccines are so effective, we're so blessed and so well tolerated yeah. that I think when people do their homework, they will end up doing what many people who've been on the fence have done and they'll come over and take the vaccine. I think. There will be a couple seminal moments when the FDA gives final approval mm -hmm. for the Pfizer and Moderna drugs. I think those will be seminal moments when we'll see more people. So that's one set. And then there's another set of people who I would just describe as, frankly, where the vaccine is just not that high a priority. Um, and for both of those groups, they're not anti-vaccine. They've taken the rest of their vaccines. Um, but for this group, they're generally speaking under 40. So people over 40. 75% have started the vaccination process. For people under 40, it's less than half. Uh, for people under 30, it's even lower. And for those people, uh, you know, it would if they walked into uh, some place they were going anyway, and someone had a needle out and said, "Hey, would you like to get vaccinated?" Sorry. They'd very likely do it. <laughs> yeah. But it would have to be easy. Yeah. Um, and so, the, so I think we're going to have to continue to make it easier and easier and increase access. Uh, Andy, the president just. Uh, return from a successful meeting with the allies of the G7, also uh, the Putin summit. And, uh, but I liked how he uh, struck the chord uh, as he was uh, departing uh, to announce that he was uh, donating 500 million vaccines uh, to the world's most vulnerable countries. It's called a global pandemic, and I think the only way America's going to get out of it is if there's a global solution. Uh, and so it's great that a new administration is taking this lead. Talk to us about uh, the U.S. Uh, role in global health. We're, we're back uh, uh, with the WHO and uh, working with COVAX and, uh, you know, so important. Uh, but how can we leverage uh, uh, the global health uh, defenses for future pandemics? Uh, and w what role should we be playing? So 
the I was really pleased that uh, my last day in the White House was the day that we made the announcement of the half a billion doses. You know, it felt to me like um, one of several things that was where I hoped, you know, quite honestly, well, in advance of where I hoped we'd be when, when I left, because I had planned on only coming in and serving 130 days. Um, and there's there's no question that we, we can't vaccinate the globe without cooperation from all the wealthy countries in the world, the pharmaceutical manufacturers, um, and many, many other things. You know, we need about 11 billion doses to vaccinate the world, and it's going to take us a long time. It's not going to take us until, you know, we won't get it all done in 2021. It's going to take us largely through 2022, and that's with increasing manufacturing capacity, increasing global cooperation through COVAX, and quite frankly, a lot of money, tens of billions of dollars. And then we'll still run into problems of distribution and vaccine hesitancy and all the things that, yeah. that we've, we've run into here. So it's gonna take a lot of work. The US will play a leading role, I think making the commitment that we have to, to, to basically buy and donate half a billion vaccines to poorer countries and middle income countries is the right way to think about it. But the longer term, you can imagine the U.S. becoming kind of the, the world's arsenal for vaccines. And you can imagine the development of capabilities uh, and capacity here in the U.S. that will make us a global leader. And I think that's part of the vision that the president has. Well, and I think he, uh, the president just announced the $3.2 billion for the antiviral program for pandemics, which really is starting the, some of those building blocks because it not only on humanitarian side, purely economics for the country. Absolutely. We're a global power, global uh, commerce is going on. And so we really need to make sure that we meet uh, what, what you're laying out here. We've been speaking today with Andy Slavitt. He's the recent senior advisor to President Biden's COVID response team, the author of a new book, Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Learn more about his latest endeavors by following him on Twitter at A. Slavitt. And Andy, we want to thank you for your dedication to stepping in when there's a need for real leadership, uh, helping to fix some of our healthcare system's biggest challenges over the years, and for joining us again today on Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thank you both. It's Great. a pleasure to be on. It's an honor yeah. to serve. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? A new study found there was no negative effect on sperm levels in men after receiving the COVID-19 vaccines undercutting suggestions that the shots affect male fertility. But social media posts have made the baseless claim that vaccinated men, quote, are effectively sterile. Experts say there is no evidence that the vaccines cause infertility in men, and there are new data that further rebut the online claims. In a study published June 17 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, researchers at the University of Miami reported that they found no significant decreases in sperm measurements among a group of healthy men before and after receipt of a COVID-19 vaccine. The team collected semen samples of 45 men, 18 and older, before receiving either the Pfizer-BioNTech or Moderna vaccine. 
and again more than 70 days after receiving their second dose. Daniel C. Gonzalez, a medical student at the university and one of the study's authors, said in a statement that 70 days is enough time to see if a vaccine impacts semen. The researchers measured volume, concentration, and the total amount of moving sperm and found no declines post-vaccination. Researchers at a hospital in Israel have reported similar findings in a study that has not yet been peer-reviewed. That study evaluated the sperm production in 43 men before and after receiving the Pfizer vaccine. The Society for Male Reproduction and Urology and the Society for the Study of Male Reproduction issued a joint statement in January saying, quote, COVID-19 vaccines should be offered to men desiring fertility, similar to men not desiring fertility when they meet criteria for vaccination. The statement notes that some men could experience a fever as a side effect following vaccination, which can cause a temporary decline in sperm production. Experts say a fever could affect a man's fertility for upward of three months, but that's any fever, not something unique to a fever following vaccination. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Anxiety disorders are on the rise among the nation's youth, and experts in the field of child psychology feel the condition starts much earlier in childhood and is far more common than previously thought with an estimated one in five children being affected. But too often, these so-called internalizing disorders go undiagnosed. Unlike children with more expressive conditions such as ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, young kids struggling with anxiety or depression often internalize their symptoms and may just seem like an introvert to the casual observer. University of Vermont child psychologist Ellen McGinnis says the process of diagnosis for younger children is often painstaking and can take months to confirm. Dr. McGinnis says the traditional method of diagnosis involves creating scenarios that induce anxiety, followed by behavioral observation by clinicians, and the results can be inexact. So she teamed up with her husband and fellow researcher, biomedical engineer, Ryan McGinnis, to create a wearable sensor that can pick up on physical cues that suggest the presence of anxiety using accelerometers and simple algorithms to compare normal stress responses. The device is called an um, inertial measurement unit, and it's about the size of a business card. And so we strap that to belts on each child. And when they did the mood induction task, it has an accelerometer in it. Um, and so we're able to pick up, you know, angular velocity, speed, how much the child is bending forward and backward and turning side to side. And it actually picks up 100 samples per second. So much more than the, you know, I can see. So we were able to see if kids with anxiety and depression move differently in response to a potential threatening information, and they do. So kids with a disorder turn further away from the potential threat 
than kids without a disorder. Their research paper shows the device was nearly 85% accurate in making a correct diagnosis. And she says early diagnosis is the key to avoiding more damaging manifestations of anxiety disorder later on. A simple, wearable tool that can assist parents and clinicians in determining if a child is suffering from anxiety disorder, leading to less guesswork and more rapid diagnosis and treatment. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.